Akili companies, they are all about the Akilian culture and they know people are the most important asset. Recently, Keeley Companies entered a new chapter of their organization and underwent an entire corporate rebrand driven by the same mission and core values. Keeley Companies is a family-owned enterprise of companies across the country. They act as your single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. They are still the same Keeley you know and you love. Just with a fresh, streamlined look, and new additions to the family. Who knows? And maybe you'll see the Keeley K around your time. And when you do, go on in, shake their hand, and tell them John O'Leary sent you. My friends, to learn more about the work they do and where they are, visit them online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire, He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. While driving with my boys recently, we were speaking about work and about value, and about mission, and about money. My oldest, his name is Jack, is taking economics classes in high school and has a job. He follows markets. He knows everything, apparently, about cryptocurrency. He's 16, which means he knows far more than I do about everything in life, including money, apparently. Well, during this car ride, we were also discussing more broadly questions around money like this. Is money good or evil? Does money actually buy happiness? Can we do more with the resources we've been blessed with for others? How do we maximize the powerful resources of our businesses in ways that transform not only the communities where we work, but also the world itself? These are big questions, questions that I don't necessarily have all the answers to. That's why I reached out to someone who actually may have some of the answers to these questions. His name Get ready for the Ford, Michael. The pressure's on now. His name is Michael Norton. He is professor at Harvard Business School. He is a member of Harvard's Behavioral Insight Group. Michael holds a BA in Psychology and English from Williams College. He also has a PhD in Psychology from Princeton University. Prior to joining HBS, Professor Norton was a fellow at the MIT Media Lab, MIT Sloan School of Management. He is co-author with Elizabeth Dunn of the book, Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. Professor Michael Norton is going to join us today to help us unpack not only the questions my kids and I were talking about on, on that car ride, but also questions we might have around money, success, happiness, and meaning in life. Michael, it's a lot of pressure, but I'm thrilled you're joining us today to have the conversation. So without further ado, please welcome my friends, our newest friend, Michael Norton. Michael, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks so much, John, for reaching out. Man, we're, we're thrilled to have you join us. Hop in the car, man. Uh, buckle up, get ready for the ride. <laughs> uh, what, what, what song do you want to have, have me uh, playing in the car ride as we drive down the road together, Michael? How about Glad Tidings, a Van Morrison song? That seems like an appropriate. 
Uh, my kids refer to like songs from four years ago as oldies. So I'm yeah. pretty they're going to call this an absolute oldie, but I think it's a goodie. So let's, let's roll down the road with it. You heard a fairly long, robust introduction of you, but when you have an opportunity of introducing yourself, whether it's at a grocery store or somewhere else in the community, how do you introduce yourself these days? So I think so. I'm a social psychologist by training, which is really the study of people, like very, very broadly defined. And so I usually define my job as either you interact with your family and strange things happen. And instead of just telling your spouse about them, you go and study them, <laughs> figure out what happened, or you just observe people in the world. You know, there's an unusual interaction on the subway and you say, huh, I wonder why that person did that. And then that other person responded like that. And then that happened. And then we say, let's study that and figure out what's going on. So it's a very observational kind of research where we're really looking to see what people are doing, seeing if it's helping them or not helping them. Usually we just try to understand, but sometimes as with money, we try to figure out what maybe they could do a little bit better and make some changes. I do want to rewind the tape in a moment to childhood and how you got interested in all of, all of this work, but I'm curious. It seems to me frequently we humans choose behaviors that do not help us. And you would think over time we would learn, we don't. Why do you think that is? Why so frequently do we choose things? You'd mentioned subway, fine. In the subway or above ground, things that ultimately are not helpful to us or to those around us. We learn many things that we then take for granted. Uh, like we try things out when we're four that don't go so well, and then we don't do those anymore. So we're capable. That's what's funny to me is we're capable of learning things. We can actually say, uh, well, when I ate that, I felt really bad. <laughs> I'm not going to eat that anymore. So it's not that we don't have the capacity to learn. And we also understand what we should do. So another problem would be, I don't know how to eat healthy. Well, that ship has sailed. We definitely know how to eat healthy. The real problem that we have as humans is putting the intention into practice. And that's where almost all the time life interferes. So I definitely want to go for a 10 mile run this morning, but guess what? My daughter feels sick. So best intentions out the window because life intervenes, or I, I really want to cook a very healthy meal too busy. Let's just have some fast food. So I think we often are trying to do our best, but it's just really, really hard in a complicated world to follow through on all of the good intentions that we have. Let's go back in time just a little bit from the subway station into your childhood. Can you can you share with our audience where you grew up and, and what life was like for a young little Mikey growing up? The most important thing to know is that I'm the youngest of five. Uh, so I have four older siblings. Although when I used to teach social psychology, I would tell my students I was the oldest of five. And they would say, oh, I can totally tell that you're the oldest. And I would say, oh, really? Why? And they would give all these reasons, you know, this, you're this, you're that, the other thing. And then I would say, well, actually, I'm, I lied to you. I'm the youngest of five. And they would say, oh, you're totally the youngest. And they would give me all kinds of reasons for that, too. So we're able to spin this story. But, but anyway, uh, I'm the youngest of five. Uh, Irish Catholic family grew up outside Boston. So a very tight-knit uh, community, both here and, and back in Ireland. Uh, and I do think the, some of my interest in observing people is from being the youngest child in a large family. You're sort of there, but then there's big kids. So you're kind of figuring out what's what with, with the big kids in your family. And I do think that kind of traveled forward in life to be observing uh, people, trying to figure them out. And then I said, at some point, I realized you could, that was actually a job. 
which was a shock to me. <laughs> That's how I got into this racket. You paid for this? That's exactly. Right. So I was with my youngest sister last night. She's the youngest of six. I'm right there yeah. in the middle, Irish Catholic family here in the Midwest. And she also is an observer. So uh, she has a 16 year gap between the oldest and Lara. How, how large is the gap in your family? 10. It goes up. Yep. And what did you observe growing up? What, what were the behaviors of others? The dynamics among people who are close are fascinating because I think there's a view and you can think in your, you know, your partner or your spouse or whoever else you're the closest with, you definitely love them the most more than anybody else, but you also spend more time with them than anybody else, which is nice. But when humans spend time together, they have conflict. There's just no, no way around it. It could be the way somebody chews or whatever else gets on your nerves after a while. And so you see very well-meaning people who really love each other actually struggling to get along. You know, it's just difficult for humans in a tight space <laughs> to really get along over a long period of time. And that was very interesting to me, right? Is that, is that conflict often arises from not starting at a place of hatred, but starting at a place of closeness. And then it's just difficult for us, again, <laughs> thinking of our good intentions again. I want to always be patient, but sometimes my patience runs out. So you want to be patient. Sometimes yours and our patience runs out. As you progress through life, your siblings are older than you are. What did you think you wanted to do as you uh, eventually stepped through high school into college? What was the big dream? For most of my life, I thought I wanted to be a teacher, a middle school teacher, like fifth to seventh grade, something like that. Uh, I, I had no idea growing up what a PhD really was or I guess I knew what professors were, but I thought that they they taught classes. I didn't know that there was really research in the way that you know we're gonna we're gonna chat about doing research. So it wasn't even that I thought about it and rejected it as a kid. I literally didn't know it existed. The job that I have now, I did not know existed till I was I don't know twenty years old or something like that. And then I said, "That's really interesting because I still get to teach, which I love. That was always in me, but now I get to do this other thing as well." So psychology and English, those are your majors, I think, back in college. Is, is that right? That's right. My father said there, I can't tell which one's more useless. <laughs> we had the same father, I think. So you, so psychology and English, yeah, you, he can't decide which one's more useless. That's fair. But what, what did you want to do with psychology and English? I, when, I, when I chose those in college, I chose them thinking I would do some kind of teaching English in high school and also that psychology would be helpful to know just in terms of, I was interested in it, but also if you're going to manage a class of, you know, 20, 11 year olds, you got to be pretty skilled at human behavior. And by the way, I'm completely unable to do that. Middle school teachers are genius. Uh, I don't even know what the right words are to describe them, but what an incredibly challenging and difficult job. I have such respect and I have tried it and just bombed. It's very, very hard. Well, that, that's a shout out of appreciation to all of our educators in the room. We have a whole lot that tune into the Live Inspired podcast. So mm -hmm. to all of our teachers, we, we thank you for your work. It, uh, it's unbelievable what you all yeah. do. You eventually go on to Princeton, though, after college. What, what were you seeking there? My best friend in college, who's now actually a professor at Tufts University, just, just north of here, he was, uh, has always been smarter than me, and he decided to get a PhD in psychology. And I said, well, he seems to know what he's doing with his life, 
So maybe I should go and get, get one too. And so I literally, I applied for these PhDs in psychology, it, mainly driven by the fact that my friend uh, knew what he was doing, had a good path, and I didn't know what else I wanted to do. So I thought maybe I'll try this for a little while. So then I, I got a PhD. Uh, then I left academia for about a year. I wasn't sure I wanted to stay, not because I didn't like it, but I just wasn't sure I wanted to do that for, you know, 40 years or something like that. Um, I moved back to Boston because I'm from here. And I met a guy named Dan Ariely, who is, was then a professor at MIT. Yes. And he very kindly said that I could come and work for him while I figured out what I wanted to do with my life and working with him he basically said, oh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you can study whatever you want. And I said, what do you mean? Like, aren't there parameters on, you know, it's academia, it's supposed to be very, you know, formal and all this kind of stuff. And he said, no, 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 don't worry about it. You can study any topic that you want. And that sort of was the light bulb for me, where I said, oh my God, this is, this is the greatest job for me. I'm definitely going to stay doing this. And I have tried to really, I don't know if it's following my heart or my head, but really try to say, that's interesting to me. I'm going to spend time working on that. And it's been really, really rewarding. Give me, give me an, an early example. We'll, we'll talk soon about the, the financial piece, but what was an early interest of yours that you studied? One of the uh, early projects was we were interested in um, why people refuse to describe other people by their race. So they will say something like, um, do you know, you know, do you, do you know, Dave? And you'll say, no, I don't know Dave. And they'll say, he's the guy who's tall and wears pants and something. And then someone will say, is he Asian? And they'll say, oh yes, he's Asian. So there's this interesting reluctance to, we'll describe people in all sorts of ways, but not by their race. And we thought that's very interesting because it's not wrong or right to describe somebody by their race. But what we found is that people really believe that if they said someone's race, people would think that they were a racist, which is an interesting leap to make. And people don't always think that. But the funniest one was then we did the same thing with little kids. And of course, little kids just say whatever. <laughs> so right around age 10, 11, 12, kids learn to stop describing people in that way. Before that, they're fine doing it. After that, they'll never do it again, no matter what we try to have them do. So we're just interested in this little hiccup in a sense which is really related to a broader problem, of course, in the world, which is racism is obviously an endemic problem and we're all trying to struggle with it. Uh, hopefully we're trying to so, uh, ameliorate it, but, but that was the initial insight was this observation of the reluctance to say something that isn't necessarily wrong, but feels like it could be loaded and problematic. So what's so interesting is I, you know, I've had roommates in college who have never asked me what happened to me as a kid. You, know, mm. you spend a year together sleeping inches away from each other in these bunks, essentially. And they've never said, hey, dude, dude uh, why do you have scars over your body? What happened to your hands? Why are the fingers missing? All this stuff after a year. Yeah. You meet a kid for the first time. And their first question as the hole on your sleeve is what, what happened to your hands? Yeah. Why did they cut off your fingers? Like they go right at it. And their mom or dad, they're trying to pull them away. But I think it's brilliant that a little kid is unafraid and unapologetic and, and coming right at it. Once they understand it's behind them. That's right. It's no longer the thing that like uh, the mask they wear, it's, it's no longer, no longer an issue. Absolutely. We always see with kids, we had another project where we asked people <laughs> to sing and dance in public. <laughs> and of course, grown ups refuse, you know, no matter what a grown up will never do it. 
as we know, if you have kids, little kids are like, oh, absolutely, I would love to. So they really have this, you know, uninhibited, uh, honest way of being that I think, I mean, we need to learn some social graces and stuff, obviously, as we get older, but I do think that they often have some real truth and honesty in what they're doing that sometimes I wish we had a little more of as grownups. You've done the research on the difference between the two. Do you have any solution for it? How do we get adults, old people like you and me and many of our listeners to, to grab their dance shoes and hit the floor? How do we become a little bit more childlike, Michael? We never got it. <laughs> we could never get people. The only thing that we see is, and you may have, often people can think of a person in their family or friend group who is this person who is very bad at things but is very happy to do them anyway. <laughs> so the problem is if someone's good at dancing and they start to dance, no one's gonna join them because they're really good at dancing and you don't wanna look like you don't know how to dance. What you really need on the dance floor is someone who's very, very bad at dancing. <laughs> so then everyone can go out and dance. And we, there are these people who are, maybe they're, they're childlike in a way, in a good way. I mean, they're immune from being worried about what people think. And they say, yeah, I have no idea how to dance, but I'm just gonna get out there and try it out. And they do then liberate the rest of us to kind of do the thing that we're not so good at. But but if they don't lead, we'll stay against the wall for hours and hours. That is a, that's just so cool. So, uh, all right, so let's get the dance, let's get to the dance floor together. I wanna to start going through some of your other research. One of the cool studies that you did was on the Ikea effect. Would, would you talk about what that is? And first, some of our listeners may not even know what Ikea is. So back into what it is and then what that effect was. So Ikea is this uh, ginormous manufacturer of all things. Uh, they're typically known for their furniture. So the business model is it's pretty decent quality furniture that's pretty inexpensive. And the question is, well, how does that, how does that work? How do they make money? And what Ikea came up with is, well, you have to put the furniture together yourself and that saves them a lot of money on the back end because they don't have to assemble it themselves. It's easier to ship for them, for example. So they save a lot of money. And people will put IKEA furniture together. And you see, by the way, if you just Google that, you see many, many frustrated people who are unable to put the furniture together correctly. Yeah, me too. It's awful. My hand is up right now. There's always some screw or something like that. <laughs> And so well, we were interested in this idea that when we make things ourselves, we really value them a lot. So the examples that often come to mind are, um, you might've made a, taken a pottery class 20 years ago and made some pot or mug or something, and you still have it. It's not very good, but you right. still have it. Or some painting you did, you keep it. Or something you built in shop in high school, you still have the coat rack or whatever it is. We have this special love of the things that we make. And even with Ikea furniture, so it's not as though we always enjoy putting it together, we don't. But if I say, what do you like better, the one you made or the one I made? People still say, oh, I kind of like the one I made. And I say, why? And they say, well, I made it. And I say, well, why is that important? They say, I don't know, I made it. I like it. <laughs> it's me, it's part of me, I put work into it. So we named it the Ikea effect because it's so common that people have put Ikea furniture together. But it's really this pretty fundamental human tendency we have that if we invest our own effort into things, it's almost as though we say, I, get, I mean, if I put that much effort into it, I, I must really like it because I don't put effort into things that I don't like. And so right. we do this funny inference where we say, this is the greatest mug in the world. I won't trade it for anything. So we have these mugs, we have this furniture that we have invested in ourselves. And I think that word investing is where I want to take you and me in the conversation next. 
where we were first introduced was through a TED talk you gave probably a decade ago now on how to buy happiness. It's a cool topic for a TED talk. And we'll talk about the book here in a moment. But uh, broadly speaking, would you tell us what that talk was about? So the idea really was, so there's a million, million, I'm exaggerating, but whatever. A lot of studies on the relationship between money and happiness. So for example, in the zeitgeist, there's many people know this figure that around $75,000, if you make more money, it doesn't make you that much happier. All of the, I shouldn't say all, but nearly all of the research was correlational. Meaning you ask people how much money they have and you ask them how happy they are. And then you try to figure out the correlation between the two, which is fascinating research. I'm not saying that it's not, it's important and fascinating, but what was missing in that was um, what people were doing with the money. So income in and of itself is not a source of happiness or not really. It's what you're doing with the income that you have. Like if you, if you and I won the lottery and you burned it all, and I, sp- I gave it all to charity. At the end of the year, our tax returns would look the same, but obviously we would have had very, very different years <laughs> in terms of what we were up to. So the initial insight we really had was, was just, why don't we go a little bit into what people are doing with the income and see what kinds of spending seem to be associated with happiness and what kinds don't seem to be. And then right from there, we could say, well, geez, if that one really seems to make people happy, I wonder if we have them do more of it, if we could actually make them a little bit happier. And all the research really came very simple, I think, insight into what we were missing with money and happiness. So we'll go into a dramatic example, because I would imagine many of our folks who are making $75,000 or $36,000 think if I could make 80 or 100 or 200, I would be far happier. So to take that example all the way to the nth degree, lottery winners. What, what did your research and the research of others find about lottery winners? Lottery winners are, are tricky. So uh, the, the nice thing about lottery winners is it's random. So if we compare you know, a billionaire to me and we say, oh, I guess billionaires are this and that, it might not be because of the money. It might be because of something else about them. So what we really want is a big group of people and some of them suddenly become rich and we see what happens to them because then we can compare you to me. So if you won the lottery, John, we could compare you to me after a while and see what happened in our lives. Many lottery winners end up just fine. Of course, they just get more money and, and it's great and they do good things with it. A lot of what can happen with lottery winners, though, and it relates to the research that we did, is it changes your life in ways that you were not expecting and that are hard to control. Often people think, oh, I bet if you win the lottery, you spend it all and you go into debt. And that can happen, of course. But the biggest disruptor for people who win the lottery is the disruption to their social lives. So you see people, um, one lottery winner that we interviewed, and it it sticks with me so much, uh, he he said that he felt like a walking dollar sign because all of his friends treated him differently. All of his acquaintances suddenly wanted to be really close friends. (laughs) People he hadn't heard from in 30 years just, you know, reached out on Facebook just to say hi and also can I have some money? His own kids started behaving differently around him and his own wife started behaving differently around him because of the money that he got. So you see all of these disruptions and that's not because of anything he did. He just won the lottery, but it can change all of these relationships around us. And that can end up making people really unhappy. And one of the reasons we know that is because in most states in the US, in order to redeem your lottery ticket, you have to agree to be in the media with a giant check. Because of course, then you and I are like, oh my God, I could win too. Let me go get the giant check. But in some countries, it's anonymous. 
So for example, in the Netherlands, if you win, nobody knows. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, outcomes are better in the Netherlands because you decide who knows and you decide what to do with the money rather than have your entire social life be disrupted. And the reason that we thought that was so interesting is because it's not really about the money. You know, the money is causing the change in relationships, but your happiness is coming not from the money, but from your relationships. So it's really, it's not the money per se, it's what the money does for you and what you do with the money that really ends up changing how happy you are with your life. There were two sets of relationships from your research that I remember being somewhat surprised by. The first was many times when lottery winners get that big cardboard check and get their picture on the paper. One of the first things they do is quit their job. You know, take this job and try. All right, all right perfect. But which actually has a negative effect because that work brings meaning. And not only does it bring meaning to do something meaningful, but the people you work with adds meaning to their life. So that's a relationship that is negatively affected frequently in winning the lottery. But the one I wanted you to speak to was marriages. Mm -hmm. I was blown away by this. Frequently, well, more frequently than not, marriages will actually be disrupted or end because one or both win the lottery. Why is that? Yeah, so compared to the base rate of what you'd expect for the divorce rate to be, you do see this uptick. Small, but it's, but it's there. And I think one reason for that is, well, I'll go anecdotal. I, I remember a woman who had divorced her husband who used the word upgrade. And I said, what do you mean upgrade? And she said, well, I thought he was fine, you know, when we were both making, you know, $50,000 a year. But now that I'm a millionaire, I thought I could do a little bit better. Mm. Of course, the sad thing is when people win the lottery, both members of the couple are looking at each other and both of them are thinking that they could probably get an upgrade on who they have right now. And so you see this changing of your reference points, of your standards in life. They just suddenly dramatically shift all over the place. This size house is no longer good for me because I'm a millionaire. This type of car is no longer good for me. And sadly, for some people, they say this type of spouse is no longer good for me. I should get a new one. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting divorced. There's nothing wrong with getting remarried. But if you think of someone who married you when you didn't have much money, did they marry you for your money or because they love you? Probably because they love you because <laughs> you don't have any money. Then if you marry someone after you're a billionaire, did they marry you for your money or for who you are? We don't know. Sometimes it's for who you are, but maybe sometimes it's because you're a billionaire and those relationships probably aren't going to be as you know deeply connecting as the other ones. Well, a relationship that you benefited from and certainly she did as well as Liz Dunn. Would you, would you talk about who Liz Dunn is and the work you did together? Yeah, so Liz Dunn is my is my co-author on this on this book, Happy Money, and she's the one who really got me interested in happiness research to begin with, uh, and and truly the reason what we've been friends for quite some time. And she said that I was grumpy, so she was she said you're just being like grumpy about everything, and you need to <laughs> work on something that makes you happy. And I said, well, like what? And she said, happiness. And I said, honestly, I don't know if that's a scientific topic, you know, like, I, I'm not sure that you can really measure happiness or change happiness. It felt like maybe a philosophical or religious question more than a scientific question to me, honestly, at the time. Uh, but Liz convinced me and Liz was the one who had this genius idea. And I can say that because it was not my idea at all. It was hers. Genius idea. So simple, which is just uh, when you look at the data, people who spend money on themselves like if you did an audit of your credit card statement for the last month and you just cal calculated how much of the money you just spent on stuff for yourself. And then we look to see how happy you are. 
it turns out the amount you spend on yourself or the percent of your income that you spend on yourself is completely unrelated to how happy you are with your life. It's not negative. In other words, it's not as though if you spend a lot on yourself, you're miserable. Sometimes we think that might be the case. We don't usually see that in the data, but it's just nothing, which means most of the money we spend is doing nothing for us. And Liz's insight was, well, if spending on yourself doesn't do anything for you, maybe we should have people spend on something else and see if that does something for them. And she said, well, let's see, what's the opposite of spending on yourself? Spending on somebody else. So that was the research that we started was just to say, if people use their money to benefit other people instead of to benefit themselves, do they actually get more happiness out of it? And the answer is not everybody all the time, of course, but on average, people who spend on others get more happiness out of their money than people who just buy themselves their 83rd, whatever they wanted, 83rd coffee of the week or whatever it might be. So I think intrinsically we think, yeah, it's probably true, I guess. You actually did the research on this. And I'm curious if you would share with our listeners how you how you tested this. This is some of the most, in addition to being a happy topic, I think it's also very happy research to do because we literally give people money and tell them to go do different stuff with it. And it's, it's, it's so basic. We just say, whatever, here's $20. Uh, you spend it this way. You spend it this way. You spend it this way. And you spend it that way. And then we call people later and we say, how happy are you? And then we can just rank things. <laughs> we can just say, hey, you know what? People who bought that, not very happy. People who bought that, they're happier. And then we can just start to kind of make a hierarchy of, hey, these things don't seem to do so much for you. These things seem to do a little bit better. So in one of the very first studies, we literally just gave people cash and said to some people, spend it on somebody else today, uh, like a gift for someone. Um, and then other people, we said, spend it uh, on yourself, like a gift for yourself, for example. And at the end of the day, we call them up and we say, literally just how happy are you on a scale from one to 10? And what we've, and people buy all kinds of stuff for themselves. And most of it's just many people buy themselves a coffee for example, with their free money. Other people though, who spent on somebody else, they also buy coffee too, but instead of drinking it themselves, they give it to somebody else. A cynical view would be watching somebody else drink your free coffee is terrible because it's my coffee. But our view was, you know, free, I mean, I'll, I'm not gonna turn down a free coffee, obviously free stuff is great, but drinking a free coffee for yourself, you probably already had coffee and you could always get some coffee. Why would it change your day really? It might make you happy while you're drinking it, but later that day, is your free coffee really going to change your day? But the experience of giving someone else a free coffee and they're happy and they smile at you and they say, thank you. That's the kind of thing that can last a little bit longer than the time it takes to drink a coffee. And we detect that in the data. When we call those people up who gave the coffee or gave to someone else, they're happier at the end of the day than people who just spend it on themselves. And again, it's important. People who spent on themselves aren't less happy. So it doesn't, it's not as though buying yourself a right. coffee is ruining you as a person. It's not, it just isn't doing much for you. And it seems like in our data, spending on somebody else does a little bit more for you. So there, there were two parts of the study that I found really intriguing. Number one, and I guess this should not be surprising because we are human beings doing life in different parts of the world, that this research bared out everywhere. I mean, there's a few isolated spots, but for the most part, everywhere, this is true. Yeah, we tend to see when we look at large-scale survey data, for example, from the Gallup organization, um, which a lot of people know for like presidential polling and things, they do these huge worldwide polls of well-being. And we can do really simple things like if, if people are asked, did you give money to charity? 
this month? And then we can, and they also answer, how happy are you? We can look to see all over the world what's what, right? So does having given to charity mean that you're happier or not? And as you said, we really see sort of striking to us, to be honest, we weren't expecting it. Right. Really everywhere we look, we see this relationship between giving and happiness. And then we do the experiments to say, well, it's not just a correlation. Let's give people cash, send them out, measure how happy they are and make sure that it's not just, you know, for some other reason, but it really is this giving that can actually improve your happiness over the course of a day. And ideally then if you make it a habit, it seems like it adds up to a little bit of a happier life. So that, that's one piece that I think is super cool. The other is, and again, surprising, it didn't really matter how much they gave. So it wasn't whether they gave 50, 20, five, hundred. It was the idea of giving something more than zero that made them happier, that allowed them to have some kind of ROI on generosity. We do see um, at, so one of our constraints on doing research is that we have to pay for it, which means we can't give people too hey, much. Dad, money I, I need another spend. loan. <laughs> exactly. And so we haven't done the, you know, give people a million dollars to give to charity today. My hunch is that would make you happier than spending $20 on somebody else. Cause how amazing would that day be? So I do think at big values, probably it does matter how much, but in everyday life kind of values, $5 versus $20, you know, it's four times as much, but really it's the act of giving to somebody else, whether it's five or 20, that's so different and so impactful on us. So I'd like to go through the, the book a little bit that you and Liz wrote together on how we can indeed buy happiness. You, you, you laid out five different strategies. One of them, buying experiences. Talk about that. So instead of buying lamps, lamps are beautiful and, and all the other things we buy for ourselves or for our house or for our vehicles, why are experiences more valuable? The one of the ways thinking, so I, I said that spending on yourself, the opposite of that is spending on somebody else. But another opposite is instead of buying stuff for yourself, you could do the opposite of stuff and buy experiences for yourself. So there's kind of these two ways to do the opposite of what we usually do. And um, over the last 15 years now, Tom Gilovich, who's at Cornell and his colleagues have really uh, collected a lot of evidence and a lot of data that again, on average, most of the time, buying an experience pays off in more happiness than buying stuff. And again, that's in part because stuff doesn't do anything for you. So all of us happiness researchers, we happiness researchers, I'm not sure, whenever we do these studies, all we have to do is beat nothing. You know what I mean? Because people are spending on themselves and it doesn't do anything for them. So if we find anything they can do with their money that does anything for them, it's going to be better than what they typically do when they spend on themselves. And so um, that research does show that, you know, if you were going to spend $20 on something for yourself or $20 out to lunch, it's better to go out for the experience. It's better to go to movies. Of course, it's better to go on vacations and things, but we can't always be going on vacations. But the little experiences over the course of a day, those are still better than just buying stuff for yourself. And there's lots of reasons for it. But one of the key ones that they show is just that experiences tend to be more social. They're not always social, but usually if you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to go out to dinner, often you're going to have somebody go with you. Whereas when you buy yourself a thing, what you do is you go back you know, to your office and try out your thing or try on your thing on your head or whatever it is that you bought by yourself. So experiences often commit us 
to interacting with people that we care about. And again, it isn't the money per se that's making us happy. It's that the money is encouraging us to be with other people. And that seems to be paying off in happiness. Awesome. You also write about the importance of making it a treat. Yeah, this one is uh, difficult and easy because it's free. So the idea really, and it's interesting because when you look at um, interventions for happiness, a lot of them are in some form or another in a lot of world religions. So religions have, however people feel about religion or not, religions have really uncovered a lot of fundamental things about how humans work, including the idea that giving something up is good and coming back to it is good as well. So most religions have some period of time where you don't eat or drink something and then later you come back to it. And if you have ever done that, you know that when you give something up and you come back, that first time back is just unbelievable. I mean, you know, bread is just extraordinary. <laughs> you haven't been having bread for a little while. So we have it in us. We know sometimes that giving it up and coming back is better. And giving stuff up is free. It doesn't cost us any money. It actually you save money. It's hard to do though because of the, oh, but I really want my coffee. <laughs> right now. But the research shows if you give something up and come back to it, the, the boost that you get from that first time back is so much higher than having consumed it all along that it often actually makes sense from a happiness standpoint to give things up and then come back to them. So I, I won't have you walk through all of these pieces, but the, the, the final one that I'll, I'll lay on is, is buying time. What, what's the value as you look at buying happiness of also buying time? My uh, colleague, Ashley Willens, who's here at HBS with me, um, we had been studying, Liz and I had been studying um, money for quite some time, you know, how should you spend your money to be happy, all this sort of stuff. And Ashley, Ashley basically said, um, but isn't how you spend your time more important? And we said, yes, <laughs> yes, it is, you're right. So she switched us to thinking about, because really what money does is it changes how you spend your time. And so time really is the key for how happy we are. And of course, every survey, people say, I don't have enough time. I'm stressed for time. I don't have enough time. There's too many things to do. And so the question was, is there any way to carve out time for people so that they could spend it more on the things that they valued and less on the things that they didn't value? And this, that there, the idea came of buying time, which is using your money to buy yourself free time. And um, in a, a little bit, it can, it can sound elitist at first, which is like, yeah, I would love to have, you know, a bottler who lives in my house who does everything for me. Wouldn't that be great? I don't have the cash for that. But in the research we do, we do small, small amounts. Like, you know, if we give people 20 or $50 over the course of a month, they can hire someone to babysit for a few hours or hire someone to clean part of their house or mow their lawn, things like that. Not huge things but things that um, actually give you a couple of hours of free time. And if people, for example, are making it a treat and not buying coffee every day, <laughs> they can take their $5 every day, save it up, and then you know, buy, buy some time. So there's a trade-off for this. But the key thing is, of course, when you buy yourself time, you can't just like sit in your basement and stare at the wall. You got to use the time for things that make you happy. So you need to take the time you bought and spend it with your loved ones spend it on a hobby that you love. You know, we know the things that are good for us to spend our time on. We just can't do it. And then we see that again, compared to spending that $20 or $50 on a stupid thing for yourself, if you spend it on buying time and you spend that time, well, pays off in more happiness. 
You, you write, and the research bears out the importance of looking through your credit card statements and identifying what you are investing your money in. And I think when people really do that closely, it blows them away, usually negatively, just shocks it, us. It, what we It's spend. horrifying. You will, I was, you will be horrified to see just, just what you're really, really spending. Uh, I mean, we know in some ways what we're spending our money on, but it's still often eye-opening to say, wow, I, that's not exactly how I thought my spending broke right. down last month. Well, and, and you haven't said this, I don't think as clearly, but it's true. As important as that audit is, the audit of time, because all of us say, I don't know, I don't have any time. But if I ask you what happened in Ozark last season, I could probably tell you exactly what happened there and what happened in you know, Parent Trap 6 and everything else that Disney has released. And so we spend a lot of time doing this stuff, but your research bears out that that may not be the highest and best use of that time. So another way of buying time is identifying where we currently invested and then invested in things that actually add value in our lives and in the lives of others. I, I totally agree. And I think one of the real challenges for us putting these things into practice is so if you think about, you know, should I work late or should I go spend time with my kids? Um, if you work late, you might get a raise and then you would have more money. And then you could say, uh, I have more money. So last year I had $50,000 and this year I have $55,000. I'm doing better in life. You know, more, more is better as a general thing in life. And so we can count money and counting is great. It really is. It feels like I really got something done. I counted things like be a good dad. It's hard to count. You know, you know what I mean? I guess you could ask your kids to rate you every day on a scale or something <laughs> like that, but it's really hard to know some of the things that really matter they're not so countable. And so sometimes we get confused by the things we can count like money and we get a little lost on, I don't know if I'd need to spend, you know, would spending one more hour with my kid today make a big difference in their life? I, I don't know. I actually don't, don't know what that would do, but I do know that it's spending another hour with my kid every day, all year is going to make a huge difference in their life, but it's hard for us to put it into practice because it's a little nebulous when we think about that, like the outcome measure literally is hard for us to wrap our heads around. So Michael, this is your life's work, man. You, you researched this and I'm, I'm curious after researching and writing and speaking, how do you live it? So what are some of the things that you've done in your life that come directly through this research and this knowledge base? One of the biggest things for me is um, I started this research before I had a daughter and along the way, I had a daughter. And one of the biggest questions people ask, if I talk to them about money and happiness, any parent, the first questions they ask are about their kids. What should I tell my kids about money? How can I encourage my kids to spend money in better ways, save money, give money to charity? Wealthy people say, uh, this is not the worst problem to have in the, in the world, but it is still a problem is I, I have all this money and my kids will never need to work. Hmm. So how do I help them not become that kind of person who doesn't have motivation, who doesn't have drive, who doesn't do the right things with money. And again, that's a problem to be envious of, but if you're a parent, you're worried about your kids. You know, you want them to have a happy life. Doesn't matter how rich you are, you're still just as worried about your kids. And so a lot of what I think about when I take all of this research that we've done on time and money is thinking about how to use it with kids. So, so how do we think about helping kids early on understand that, time is precious and they need to start thinking about allocating it. And I don't mean in a stressful way, like give them a calendar. I just mean thinking, you know, what is money for? 
there's this wonderful um, intervention that not designed by me. If you think of giving a kid an allowance, a weekly allowance, you, you know, let's say $3. Usually if you give kids an allowance, you implicitly, they're going to buy something for themselves. You know, it's not stated, but often kids are saving up to buy themselves a thing that they really want, a good doll or a toy or whatever it might be. Imagine if instead you say, here's, here's your $3 allowance. $1 is for you. $1 you spend on somebody you know, and $1 you have to spend on somebody you don't know. Wow. Just as a habit. And we don't have the long-term data. You know, it's not like all of those kids go on to be amazing humans. We don't know that for sure. But you can see how dramatically that changes what kids think money is for from a very early age. You know what I mean? And they'll feel good doing it. If you've ever uh, donated money with your kid online uh, to any charity, they love it. You know, they, they, they're saving a lion or whatever it might be. It, it feels good to us. Our, our research shows, but also just anecdotally, kids really like to do it. Actually, they like to give. They're like these kind little creatures. They also punch each other and stuff. <laughs> they have this kindness in them. And I think you can, you know, develop it in them and inculcate it in them as not just something you do occasionally, but kind of a habit that you have with, with your money that it isn't just for you. It can be used for other things and other people as well. So I'm hearing the word kid and child and young people uh, quite a bit from you for our listeners who are a bit more seasoned in life and many of them not having children. Give us one way as we get ready to move to the finish line together of our Live Inspired conversation on how we can buy happiness in whatever way you want to challenge us today. So give, give us a challenge on, on what it ultimately means. I would really strongly encourage people to try this as we discuss this audit of their finances. Um, some credit card companies do it for you. So they'll have like a pie chart that breaks down your spending into different categories, but those aren't necessarily the right categories for you. So when you look at your spending, think about what the categories are. You know, even before you do it, what would you like to be spending your money on? What do you hope you spend your money on last month? And just go down the list and see where it is. Just, you know, I mean, that's bad for the environment, but, you know, imagine printing it out and, and checking it off with different colors. And then what we find is that people, again, are surprised. And then we say, well, why don't you try to do it differently next month? Like, tell me how, what percent you want on this, what percent you want on that, and see if you can put it into practice next month. And guess what? Next month comes, they look at it, no changes at all. <laughs> it's really hard to change these habits that are so ingrained. But if you continue at it, you know, you, you set the goal again, you're a little more mindful about what you're spending, then I think people can be able to change how they're spending their money. And those little changes, again, it's not as though, you know, giving money to charity today is not going to change your life and you're happy forever and ever. That's not how life works. But those little changes, I think, can add up so that you are shifting away from things that don't make, don't do anything for you toward things that maybe do make you a little happier. The other easy thing is that we talked about this uh, make it a treat principle. Yes. That one's super easy to put into practice. And I, it, it really is. If you have a favorite Netflix show, make yourself not watch it for a week. <laughs> Don't binge the entire thing. And when you come back to it, you'll be so happy and so excited to see what happens in a way that you just can't when you binge watch the entire thing from start to finish. So make it a treat and audit your finances. I think it's a, a great idea as we look at our lives as individuals. You also write and speak a lot around what it looks like corporately, organizationally, and business owners in the room and HR directors and everybody else who have influence professionally. 
How can we model this a little bit more effectively organizationally? One thing when we work with uh, companies and their employees, uh, many, many companies have on a, for charitable giving, a matching system. So I can give to a charity that I care about, and then my employer will match that, which is great. I, I want to be super clear. Don't stop doing that, employers, because I think it's great. Um, however, it's kind of a weird signal if you think about it, because what it says is the, the, your employer has money they could give to charity, but they're just going to sit on it unless you do something first. And that's like sort of a weird, it's like if you said, can you help me move? And I said, sure, but you help me move first. It's still, it's nice, but it's different than just absolutely, I'll help you move. And so there's this strange dynamic that we see where, why do I have to go first? Why can't you just support things I care about? And we work with companies where we literally do that. So we'll have companies just give money to their employees to give wherever they want. No strings attached. No, you have to give first. And then we measure with employees and things like employee satisfaction. And as you can imagine, when your employer gives you, and again, $20 is, is more than enough to give to a charity you care about, it's a big deal. You really appreciate it. You say, my God, this is really, really nice of them. I wouldn't have expected that from a company, but they really supported me. When we do the research, we do see it tends to make people happier. And they tend to say, I like my company more. You know, This is the kind of company that I'd like to work at. And when you aggregate up all the things that everybody did in the company, and you say, look what we did this week, look what we gave to as an organization this week. First off, it's impressive. But second, people look around and say, I thought you people were all jerks. <laughs> you know, like that guy annoyed me, but my gosh, look what we did. You know, look what we did as a group. I guess we must be a pretty great group of people. So you get these warm fuzzies that are hard to get otherwise for the people you work with as well. Let me ask you a final question before we pivot into the Live Inspired 7. Can money buy us happiness? Michael Norton, yes or no? It can buy you happiness if you spend it right, is, is what I would say. But huge caveat, money is not the only route to being a happier person. So many of the things in life that make us happy have nothing to do with money. They have to do with how we spend our time and how we treat other people. So we look at spending money, how you can shift it around to be a happier person. But I never want people to think, if I just change how I spend my money, I'll be perfectly happy because you got to do a lot of other stuff related to people as well. Michael, we have seven questions that tether all of our guests together, whether they be professors or astronauts, and they all begin with the same question. Question number one, and this takes you way back to your schooling days. What's the most influential or most impactful book you've ever read? I read a book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde uh, a few years ago. And one of the, uh, actually a long time ago, 20 years ago, one of the things he wrote was about two things. One is the meaning of the word gift is very complex, actually. What does it mean to give somebody a gift? But what really struck me was he said, when someone is a mentor to you, they've given you an enormous gift. Hmm. that you can never pay back because you could never mentor your mentor. It's not how it works. <laughs> so the only thing you can do when you've been given a gift of mentoring or coaching or support is pay it forward to somebody else. The only way to honor the gift is to give the gift. And it, it really struck me and it stays with me. I think about it all the time. That's awesome. Very challenging to hear that and very encouraging. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as the youngest of five growing up outside Boston? that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? That's a hard one. I think maybe something like wonder. 
for people who have young children, you, you see that they encounter the world with wonder and uh, including, you know, ice is amazing for little kids. And for us, it's a nuisance. So I do think I, I try as much as I can to get back to that sense of, of wonder of, you know, discovery in the world, but, but life intrudes, unfortunately. Watching my four kids grow and their wonder around ice. I wrote an entire book around the joy that they have at the little things and the longing that I have in my heart that they re, that they hold on to that wonder as they age. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, me too. Wonder what, what a cool characteristic. If your home caught fire and your loved ones and any animals you may have are out safely and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, a physical item, what one thing would you return safely with? The first thing that came to mind is a, is a painting that my daughter did that we love. And the second one that came to mind is I um, play guitar and I might grab my guitar. I might do daughter's painting in one hand, guitar on the other hand and try to get out. <laughs> so hang the daughter's painting on the alley next to your house and, uh, and play the guitar while the right. thing burns. I think that's pretty awesome. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Wow. There's so many, there's so many people that I, um, I would love to chat with. I think, uh, my mother passed away. So I think I would say my mom. What was the, the lesson she taught you matters most in life? What was, what was her legacy? My mom was a very kind person. And if she really disliked someone, the worst thing she would say about them is she would say, she would say, he's not for me. <laughs> that was a strong, Are you sure she as was strong hard? as she would get. And so I, <laughs> exactly. So I took from her this idea of trying to see the best in people, I think. Thank you. And thank your mom for, for that. Uh, my grandmother, a beautiful Irish lady who we lost during COVID, uh, used to say uh, a little prayer that for those she did not like, uh, Lord, let their hearts be turned. And if not their hearts, their ankles, so that I may recognize them by their limp. So that, <laughs> that is the way my grandmother used to navigate life. Great lady. Katty beautiful. Kimber. What's the best advice your mother or anybody else ever gave you? Great question. I'm not sure it was, it was specific advice in a conversation, but I think, um, but I do think this issue of it's sort of uh, it's, it's your job to improve the world. I think it was implicit in how I was raised was that it's, it's like uh, it's not exactly your job, but it should be part of what you do in your, in your life that you, you're not supposed to just focus on yourself. You're supposed to try to make something better for somebody else somewhere along the way. I don't know if I have, but that, that, that's something that I try to strive well, for. I think yeah. you have, and I think the opportunity to do so going forward together is highly relevant during these days. What advice would you whisper into your ear at age 20? So if you could go back in time with the knowledge you have today and give yourself some encouragement or wisdom or advice, what would you say? And maybe I would say, don't worry so much about going bald. It'll be fine. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the advice you needed. You needed far more bold advice, Rogaine or something like this, man. Maybe. <laughs> it, it has been said, Michael Norton, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I think I would like people to say that I was generous. Michael Norton, author, researcher, professor, father, Friend, 
uh, generous leader, I want to thank you for being part of our podcast community. I want to thank you for making a mighty difference in our community through your work. It does matter. And your mother remains proud. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much. Friends, that is Michael Norton. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Stay generous and live inspired. spending money on others regardless of whether it's five dollars or even five billion for you big spenders out there your happiness increases over the next few days i encourage you to spend less than five dollars on someone else and see how it makes you feel do you feel happy do you feel a little bit more joyful do you love the impact that you can make on somebody else's life in these micro doses of generosity if you want to share the experience of your generosity i'd love to hear from you email me at podcast at johnolearyinspired.com. I'm going to say it again because I really do want to hear from you. Email me your generosity story at podcast at johnolearyinspired.com. My friends, if you enjoyed today's conversation, you will love hearing from my friend. Her name is Ami Kamba. During our time together, I learned that one single act of generosity ripples out at least four degrees of separation. That's awesome. It means the little things we do for others can have this profound ripple effect, not only in their life, but in the lives of those they influence. What a big deal. Ami also shared how generosity frees us from the grip that fear and insecurity have on us. You'll leave that conversation with Ami ready to transform your community, to live generously, to love, and to let go. I encourage you to check out her episode at episode 480. So friends, Thank you for tuning into this episode this week for this time. And until next time, coming to you live from Phoenix Harbor Airport, my name right now is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What Keeley Companies was started almost 50 years ago by the one and only Larry Keeley. What started as a small family-owned paving company in St. Louis has grown to a nationally known full-service construction, development, and restoration partner. Larry the Legend, as he is affectionately known, has been a part of this growth every step of the way and continues to provide guidance as his son, Rusty, my buddy, drives their vision and achieves results on purpose. His unwavering foundation of a family culture with a focus on people has gotten Keeley Companies to where they are today, and their journey is truly just beginning. To learn more about Larry the Legend and Keeley Companies, check them out at keeleycompanies.com.